This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths. Enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The term transfiguration points to the radical change that unfolds holistically when we seek to transform our trauma. When we are transfigured, we too become illumined in body, mind, spirit, and soul. This means we become conscious, aware, and connected to our thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. We become reconnected to our embodied senses. We come to know ourselves intimately psycho-emotionally, physically, and spiritually, as we navigate our embodied interior landscape. We become more spiritually attuned with ourselves, others, and the whole of creation. We undergo a transformation on multiple levels of our personhood, and through this transformational process, we become our authentic selves. And we inevitably encounter the divine indwelling, the infinite, or mystery, We come to understand we are not separated from the divine, one another, or creation. Through our transfiguration, we become who we are meant to be. And in doing so, we come home to our authentic selves, a place of belonging. Valeria interviews Eva Dazia Raza. She is the author of Transfiguration, 30 Meditations Inspired by Transforming Trauma and Spirituality. Eva Dazia Raza is a licensed clinical social worker LCSWC, transpersonal psychotherapist specializing in trauma, grief, and contemplative spirituality and renewal. She is an author, poet, speaker, teacher, and spiritual director. Eva Dacia holds two graduate degrees, a Master of Social Work and a Master of Arts in Theology, and she earned a graduate certificate from Vanderbilt Divinity School in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. She is the founder of Dragonfly Trauma Counseling Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she serves clients using somatic and neuro-based trauma therapies and mindfulness-based interventions. The dragonfly symbolizes opportunity, change, transformation, adaptability, and new beginnings. Eva Dazia believes transformational healing of our trauma inevitably gives birth to our post-traumatic spirituality and authentic selves. She lives in the expansive light and wild beauty of the high desert of northern New Mexico. Meet Eva Dazia at dragonflytrauma.com and evadaziaraza.com. Here's the interview with Eva Dazia Raza. In your own words, who is Eva Dazia Raza? <laughs> Ava Dacia Rasa, I am the creaturely beloved. I am a co-creator with the beloved. 
And my name means the living one in service to the divine. So I, from the depth of my soul self, believe that that's who I am. I'm not what I do. I'm not what I have. That who I am in the most authentic soul self is a creaturely beloved, called to be of service and companion others on their transformational, transfiguring journey. How did you come to understand and meet yourself the way you describe it just now? How did this happen, Ava? Well, that is not so much as an event as an unfolding over time, you know, like a beautiful flower, right? We, we kind of bear witness to it unfolding petal by petal. It really started in my early 20s through an experience of contemplative practice that was deeply influenced and inspired by the work of Thomas Merton, and who was a 20th century Trappist monk, um, mystic, poet, uh, prophetic voice. And I considered him my first spiritual director, but it was through his writings and work and through the um, kind of embodiment of that through a house of prayer in Manhattan that I met people and experienced contemplative practice as a spirituality. And while I was also at, in therapy at the time, and I really had not accessed fully my authentic self, that was kind of the, the entry point. That was one of the portals for me to walk through and begin to um, get glimpses of the authentic self, even though I was still operating in many ways in the world on what I call the fragmented, false, performative, maladaptive self. But it really started with this experience of a contemplative practice, which I really attribute in large part to uh, saving me uh, in the whole healing, transformational process, therapeutic process. Yeah, it caught my attention this um, when you mentioned in your bio, it says that uh, contemplative practice. Uh, how would you describe what that is? Could you give us an example? I think the most accessible way I could describe it would be being still and silent. Uh, we can call it meditation, but sometimes that can be a, a little disarming for people. But it's simply taking optimally at least 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening to stop, pause, breathe, be still, be present, and kind of notice our thoughts. And in my practice, which is centering prayer, I use a sacred word and it helps me to bring my attention back um, because we, the mind, its role is to generate thought after thought after thought. And part of the practice is to notice with curiosity, but not to kind of, you know, go down the rabbit hole, not to get hooked and have it take us on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Right. So, you know, it's kind yeah. of just, so if my sacred word, let's say is, uh -huh. um, let's say it's uh, peace, then as I notice my mind wandering off, I'll quietly say interiorly peace. And that would help me come back 
to soul self. So it's this kind of practice. It's if some people call it a mindfulness practice, but it's a contemplative practice. It's a way to practice the presence, right? Paying attention in this moment without judgment, which is how we describe mindfulness. But in the contemplative, at least um, the, the kind of Christian mystical tradition that I came out of, it was really learning how to open ourselves to the movement of the divine, to open ourselves to the indwelling of the divine, to the movement of spirit, and to be receptive, right? So where it's not about doing, it's really about being. Yes, uh, that resonates, right? And, and that also truly describes um, what the divine is. So it's being, it's um, this infinite being that's always present, always here. Is that how you describe, you also describe the soul, the spirit, um, Ava? Well, I, I see us as body, mind, spirit, soul. And I think that our soul self is, as you said, always infinitely being and becoming even and beyond when we leave our bodies. There's always this kind of eternal now, and then there's this kind of eternal unfolding, right? There's, it, it's really kind of disrupts our, you know, limited kind of incarnational nature here on earth, you know, um, because unlike the flowers here on earth that, you know, planted, sprout, blossom, unfold, and then die and wilt, right? I, I see us as this kind of perpetual unfolding, um, you know, like the eight-pointed lotus, you know, our soul is just kind of perpetually unfolding. And part of that happens in this body, with our mind, with our spirit, and even beyond that. Mm. Yes. I wonder if a lot of I mean, since I was very young, I remember thinking, reflecting already about these things. Why I was born in the body, in the, in the conditions that I, in the family, to the family that I was raised by. So is that something that the soul is choosing, Ava? Is that your understanding that we just, the unfolding of the soul is just choosing new bodies and specific bodies with specific um, predestined kind of uh, unfolding? I am going to be very honest here and very transparent. I don't know. I I can tell you as a trained theologian in, in the kind of Catholic Christian tradition, uh, I was trained by the Jesuits, but I've been very informed by my spirituality, by the mystic, the mystics and the mystical tradition. I, I know that that's one school of thought, that we choose our parents, we choose our body, we choose this life. And I am humble enough to, know, to say to you, I really don't know. I mean, I think that school of thought has some merit. I, I see it more through a lens of mystery. And I don't know if I chose this family. I mean, I, I came from a family of origin where there was a lot of abuse. And there was, you know, really profound existential suffering. So it's sometimes my mind gets in the way and says it would be hard for me to understand why I would choose that. That said, it's mystery. And what I do know is that this is the family into which I was born. And these are the people with whom I, you know, was reared. And these experiences fired me. 
they really fired me like in an alchemical sense. And out of that fire, all the dross that was burned off, this is the result. So some of me says that the, the strengths and gifts and, um, you know, various offerings I bring to the world came out of that fire. And, and maybe but for that, they wouldn't have. On the other hand, I'm not so convinced that I, you know, necessarily that there was an actual causal correlation, like that, that you know, maybe maybe this would have unfolded and these gifts would have come forth out of the fire of life anyway. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not of the school of thought strictly that says that we do choose and we have a contract. And I know that's one way of thinking, but I'm but I'm humble enough to know that, that I don't know. What I do know is I I do believe that I was um, placed into this particular family of origin with my parents and siblings um, and that it, within that familial context and environment, certain lessons and, and life challenges ensued. And through those, I have become more authentically who I am. Uh, I love your answer when it comes to the knowing that I don't know, right? Yes, there's so much we don't know. And there's um, there's actually read something recently. One of my, uh, I'm very much informed by Advaita Vedanta, you probably non-duality uh, teacher, oh, so I'm a yes. student of that. So, and I remember somebody saying, I think it was um, Travaka, yeah, he says, um, it's just when there's no thinking, that's when you actually know something. <laughs> when the, the thinking's not there, that's when true knowledge mm-hmm. arises. Mm-hmm. That's how I know that trying to put words into something that we can have fun, kind of trying to uncover the, the mystery that cannot be uncovered. It's fun. It has been a lot of fun for me to have these conversations. But it's not really, there's no intention to really grasp it with the mind, what the truth is. It's just mm-hmm. fun to me. I don't know why, but it feels like, oh, let's talk about the mystery, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we, at the end of the day, these are pointers, right? They're, there's It's the unspeakable. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's the ineffable, right? We can't, it's beyond words. It's beyond, it's, that's, that's the nature of mystery. And I, and I think for me, being, Learning how to swim in the waters of mystery is an outward sign of the inward transformational journey that I've undergone. Mm, because yes. when we're because when we're in trauma response mode, we tend to be in, you know, we're in a subcortical response mode or an autonomic nervous system, all or nothing, black or white. And when we start to transform our trauma, we learn how to start to navigate in the in-between spaces. And I think in these in between kind of liminal spaces is where mystery really unfolds. So I, you know, I think that learning me, the, the, the older I get and the more comfortable I am being with uncertainty and mystery and not grasping and not needing to know and not needing to, you know, figure everything out with the thinking, thinking, thinking is where we are just able to be and be receptive and be met with mystery, right. To, to have mystery, we encounter it, right? Yes, yes, a billion times. Ah, there's so much joy there. There's, for me, I call it fun, it's spiritual fun, meaningful fun, because there's no grasping, right? And that's when the fun starts, when there's engagement but not attachment. 
like, ah, you know, it's like dancing with the partner and then you leave and then dance with another one and then you're just kind of uh, flowing, spiring everywhere. Uh, it's freedom, really, isn't it? It's, I mean, it really kind of comes to me that the, the revelation of that as freedom itself, like not grasping. And even though it seems like um, those who say that they don't grasp, but they are actually dancing the song of life with this kind of freedom, they actually do grasp but without words, right, Ava, in a way. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing you just said, right? Because when we think about trauma and we think about the intersection of trauma and spirituality, how we think about trauma, what comes up for us, we think about, well, trauma in Greek means wound, but we also think about the suffering, right? And I believe in our human condition, there's inherent suffering that we just because of the, the the sheer limitations within our kind of incarnational existence, we have these these um, limitations on our mortality. So, that, so there are certain kind of b- built-in, inca- you know, incarnational inherent sufferings. But I think what makes everything so much worse, it exacerbates it, is our grasping, which brings on pain, pain, pain on top of the suffering. Mm, yeah. Right. Yes. How do you define trauma and what is spirituality to you and how do you connect those two, trauma and spirituality? Well, I mean, literally, trauma comes, you know, from the Greek meaning wound. Um, and that said, we know from neuroscience, particularly the neurobiology of trauma, that trauma and and I say this in my I think it's my preface or my introduction. I I point to Dr. You know Bessel van der Kolk, the preeminent neuropsychiatrist uh, pioneer, who wrote the Body Keeps the Score. But trauma is really when we are overwhelmed. So our autonomic nervous system gets overwhelmed. You know, it's funny. I recently had a client say to me, I never thought of myself as having trauma because I didn't have, and he starts naming these, what he called big T traumas, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, trafficking. He just went down this litany. And I said, no, trauma is when our autonomic nervous system becomes overwhelmed. What does that mean? It means we feel out of control. We have a loss of agency. Um, Neurobiologically, what happens is our you know, our subcortical limbic system gets activated. We can either go into mobilization, fight, flight, or immobilization, which is a freeze or fold collapse. And we, our prefrontal lobe, our neocortex tends to start to go, what we say is offline. It gets compromised. Our amygdala and hippocampus get activated, flooding the prefrontal lobe with cortisol and adrenaline. And we get into black, white thinking, all nothing, life, death, right? So, but it can be something like, for example, you know, a three-year-old learning how to ride a bicycle and the three-year-old's out in the driveway riding the bicycle and they fall, they scrape their knee and the knee is bleeding. And for a three-year-old to have that happen, it's very scary, right? And then they see the blood. And so that can be an autonomic nervous system stress response can be a traumatic stress response. That's the first trauma. And according to Vanderkolk, the second trauma is when whether or not we have somebody there to help us cope or navigate. So if somebody's out there in the driveway and nobody comes out and says, come on in, let me wash it, put a Band-Aid on it, let me kiss your boo-boo, everything's going to be okay, let's put you back on the bike, you can do this, right? But if somebody's not there, that person, the secondary trauma is, I'm all alone in this. 
right? So trauma doesn't have to be just these, you know, the big things that I enumerate in the book, in the preface and introduction, both private, you know, and collective and, and, you know, even on our planet, like climate, climate crisis, it can be something like a child grows it up in an otherwise perfectly on the face of it, loving family, but maybe that family had kind of an unspoken rule that we never experience distressing emotions like sadness, disappointment, anger. And so somebody might grow up thinking, I can, you know, I have these big emotions. They're little kids. They don't even have the cognitive capacity to say to themselves, I'm having big emotions. They just feel the big emotions and they don't know what to do with them because they're in a, a family system that says, we don't do that, right? And that can produce trauma. So it can be something on the face of it that seems like a small T trauma, some people would say, to, you know, to, to sexual abuse and religious trauma and, you know, medical trauma and birth trauma. So there's a whole continuum, but it's really what's happening in our autonomic nervous system. That really makes sense to me. And I remember reading somewhere, maybe I heard from somebody here about the trauma being as exactly as you said, it depends. She phrases, I think, differently. She said it depends on the person because we all very unique. Some of us are highly sensitive and anything that oh, something that could not be perceived as trauma with a big T for some would be for somebody else. So it really, it depends on how we are wired. So th that made more sense to me. Yeah, right? yeah, and that that is very much echoing what I'm saying. And so, for example, you can have a family where the parents divorce, you've got two kids, one moves through it without any major rupture, or, you know, they can adjust, or they accept, they move through it, they're not at least visibly massively ruptured or disrupted by it. And the other one is devastated. And so it, it really is, how does our autonomic nervous system, what's happening in our limbic system in response to the external event? And then whether we have people there to help navigate. You know, that's a big one. Um, you kind of uh, made me think about my own experience with trauma and not having having those harsh experiences and not having support after that. So there was a second trauma, mm -hmm. almost like compound or right. complex trauma. And I remember also, Ava, going already naturally to this contemplative kind of practice in the sense of looking up the sky and kind of asking for help to the unknown, which is kind of a prayer, really. It's not the way contemplative, the way practice is the way you described as being just observing. Yeah, I was reaching out to something that was invisible to me. I have been informed by that my entire life. So that's why I never done therapy formally, because I always naturally would go to spiritual uh, practices or philosophies, kind of. Uh, that was my path. That was my way of right, healing. Right. And I, I want to just validate that that is a profoundly uh, effective, transformative path, uh, because it wasn't just external religiosity it was an internal attending attending you were seeking something both imminent and transcendent which brings me to the whole concept of spirituality so he, here's the thing i believe when we undergo radical interior transformational healing which i call leads to transfiguration not only is post-traumatic spiritual growth possible it is absolutely inevitable 
And this is very, very distinct and different from religion or religiosity. Not to say that religion or religiosity or theology, I mean, I'm a trained theologian. It's, I, I'm not dismissing that. I'm saying that the spiritual awakening, for lack of a better word, the connecting, the spiritual conscious connection to both something here and now, we call that the imminent, right? Me, me, uh, creation, things in creation, and then something that's altogether beyond me, which we would call the transcendent. Mm-hmm. So when you're gazing up at the sky, yeah. yes, you're looking at the imminent, the sky, the earth, but you're also, there's a kind mm-hmm. of a, a turning of your soul yeah. towards something that's invisibly even beyond that, right? Right, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. See, that's exactly it. And that's interesting how that's in us. So it is a resource that is um, innate to look inward and to trust what we cannot see with the physical eyes. Because for me, that's what was, trust. And I knew that was my path, spirituality. It wouldn't be cognitive healing in the sense of doing therapy. That would not for some reason, never resonated. I mean, I I absolutely respect and I love all kinds of um, paths that would lead to the deeper understanding of what we are. That's, I mean, I have reverence for that, like devotion. So you're a licensed clinical social worker, uh, transpersonal psychotherapist. So that's interesting coming from that perspective that you're merging science and spirituality. And you also mentioned in the book that this is non-transfiguration and connecting spirituality to post-traumatic growth. It's not something that's common or it's not yet, let's say, recognized by most professionals or the uh, scientists of the mind. Do you know why? Well, so a couple things. There are some folks in the let's say the, you know, psychotherapeutic arena that have been working particularly from a lens of, you know, neurosomatic work. I think, you know, I think of Peter Levine, for example, you know, Waking the Tiger. I think of Gabor Gabor Monte. I mean, there are people that are starting to have that conversation. However, what you described to me, and I just want to point this out, your ability to engage in an embodied somatic way the seeking of, let's say, you know, the spiritual that you call it spirituality, but you did it in this somatic embodied way and you did it through na- nature of, of, is one thing you mentioned. And that, that is a very different experience than, you know, something like talk therapy, which is why I do neurosomatic work in my trauma, EMDR, brain spotting, mindfulness interventions and and that's somatic embodied so it it wouldn't surprise me that as you engage in a somatic embodied way with nature and you know people places and things that you experienced healing and transformational healing that wouldn't surprise me because you weren't working from a kind of a prefrontal you know top down left brain mode you you were coming from you know the somatic the embodied the incarnational the enfleshed um but there are people that are starting to have that dialogue but i it's not it's 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 at the beginning it's um it's something that I, I hope to continue to write and research and explore um, because I think they're intimately connected. Uh, 
But yes, many people are doing, you know, kind of trauma work and starting to have that conversation about how the two inform each other, trauma and spirituality. But but it is it is not um, let's say it's not completely mainstream, but there are there are there's murmurings and uh, some people that are starting to touch on that. Yeah, which is wonderful to know. From my perspective, is really it's just another path that why not? Right, we all we need all the help that we can get when it comes to trauma and living a peaceful life, getting to that uh, state of being. Here, here's the thing about trauma and spirituality: when we undergo radical transformation, not just what we would call healing, but really radical transformation from the inside out that I say leads to transfiguration. We are flipping the cultural dominant paradigm of doing, having, being to being, right? Uh, And then maybe we get to do and then maybe we get to have. So when we are changed from the inside out, we learn how to be. We can't escape then the, the, the dimension of spiritual connectivity, because spirituality is about being and becoming. So the, the two are intimately connected. Right. That, yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating to me, Ava, that uh, the more I, I try to kind of match the, um, the already felt understanding that I have with the outside language of the world, in, in this case, Advaita Vedanta, because I read a lot of that and I listen to a lot of talks. And I see that it makes so much sense the way you speak now of most people, most of us come from the this concept, this idea that life, whatever is happening here, is it's happening from the physical to the spiritual, if there is a spiritual. Some people don't even kind of embrace that. But it's um, very interesting to notice that it's actually the it's completely the other other way around that it is the being that is here first it's what is witnessing it's what is um noticing all this where all the the experiences are happening it's in in consciousness where where would that be it's inter- everything that is being felt all the sensations the perceptions everything it's being Um, it's happening in consciousness, it's being translated by consciousness, which we call the mind. There's a a difference between those two, but it's part, of course, everything is in consciousness. But it's um, listening to you saying that it's kind of, it's kind of sad to know that this is the reality for most of us still, human beings, to believe that we are finite, that we're all going to die one of these days, and that's it. How could we ever be happy, actually, and at peace, no thinking that way, that this is all the body, mind, and then death. It doesn't, right. make, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. Not yeah, now. It, it's curious because in, in the book, I, I think it was under the meditation in flesh that I, I quote the uh, great 20th century mystic philosopher and paleontologist, the Jesuit Teilhard de Chardin, who's been attributed by, you know, with the, the very common saying, we are, not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And I think that's what you're saying. I mean, in order for us to come fully into our authentic self, we have to learn how to be fully human. And being part of being fully human is being completely rooted in our spiritual soul self. 
Yes. Uh, and I think our soul absolutely goes on after our body gives way and, and we continue in a different form. Energy, we're energy. We continue in energy. Yes, right. And, and I mean, that to me now, it's just, uh, it's the felt understanding. It's not, it's my experience. Like when I wake up a lot of times, I notice that um, I have my phone away from me. It's not having my bedroom, but this is just one of the experiences I have. And then I'm sleeping and then I have this, something comes to me and in the mind appears this image of somebody that's calling me. Or sending a message, my phone's off in, in, a, in a different room, far away from my room. And then when I wake up, it's exactly that. There's a, a message from somebody that I, how would I know that? Mm-hmm. So that cannot be from the mind. That's something that's outside of the mind, which means the mind is in it. So everything is in it. So he knows everything. It's not to say that I would know everything as the human mind with this small perception, but... The more we open up to this um, reality that we are spirits, as you said, having a human experience, then the more we are able to see those things happening, like sleeping and knowing something that's happening in, like in Japan, something just happened. People who do predictions, and you probably heard, we all know people who do that, and they can predict things that, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's hard to believe, but it, it happens all the time. Of course, these people, they are yogis. Most of them are yogis or called psychics. But that's how we know. I, I know. That's it. I have small glimpses of that. But I know that there are people who pretty much live in that space. They all be, they're having these experiences all the time, which is called mystical experiences. They don't need the body in order to know things. So going back to your book, Transfiguration, 30 Meditations Inspired by Transforming Trauma and Spirituality. What was the main inspiration and intention of writing your book, Ava? I started, this book in many ways has been writing for years. It's been writing itself through me for years. But I I kind of consciously was engaging it last spring. And during last spring, my mother was approaching the end of her life. And I was very engaged in her care, her you know, management and her eventual hospice, uh, death and funeral. And so it was very kind of intermittent. And then after she died, it's as if this book took off on a life of its own. It literally wrote itself through me. And I felt I could feel my mother championing me from the other side. So I felt called by the divine to write this book. It wrote itself through me. It's been a lifetime in the making. And I, I really felt called to put pen to paper and to articulate my experience, both it's not an autobiography, but my experience has informed it and my bearing witness to clients who have allowed me to companion them on their transformational transfiguring journey. So I really felt it was a call. It really kind of wrote itself through me. I mean, like nonstop furiously till November. And then there was three months of intensive revision. So it wasn't a top-down thing. It was more like a bottom-up, and it came from the inside out. And I really do think it was part of what the divine was asking me to offer. Right, yeah. It's beautiful to hear that. That's what we call intuition, listening to our intuition, really listening. And one of the meditations is actually called Holy Listening, and that caught my attention. It's one of the meditations that caught my attention. And there you say, speaking of listenings, you say, listening with the ear of a heart, a threshold of returning, 
then is unescapably a transfiguring experience. That I, I have that here because that resonated. So it's going back to listening to our own intuition, the heart, the soul. For some of us, it's not, it doesn't happen, although everyone, I think it's a calling for everyone. And it doesn't happen, unfortunately. I would say for my own family, like my husband, he's often doesn't listen to the intuition. Is that something that um, has to do with what we talked early on about the way humans see reality, the way we see life unfolding that's from the outside, from the outside to the inside? Is that something that it's not helping us to uncover our authentic self, Ava? Or there's a lot more to it? So the whole you know, the phrase listening with the ear of our heart comes from the rule of St. Benedict. And holy listening is really about being present, right? Having silence, having solitude, and not doing. It's just stop, pause, breathe, be still, be in some space of quiet and solitude, and and deeply attend to the movement of your heart, the voice of the spirit within. And most people don't have that built in because, again, we are kind of, we privilege doing in this country to the point of workaholism, right? Like frenzy, frenzy consumerism. But when we carve out time to simply quiet and be, we can listen deeply, attentively. I love that word, yeah, to attend. You know, recently I interviewed Matt Mumber. He's an oncologist, and he that's what he does. He write, he's a poet, too. He writes uh, many books. The last book, poetry book, it's called The Attending. Uh, I don't know why you just reminded me of him with the word attending, the way you speak. Of it. When you, the way you say that kind of reminds me of what his message is all about. It's a kind of an interior disposition where we bring a sense of reverence to the moment. There's this whole concept, the non-duality, right? This moment is the eternal now, as Richard Rohr would say. But it's also, it's the cosmic now. It's the eternal, it's right now and the eternal now. But to just, with great care, with great attention, we want to attend this moment, this breath, Right. And, and I think when we do that, we can listen deeply. If we're on the surface and we're addicted to be busyness and doing and doing and doing and distraction and going and going and going, it's, we cannot listen with the ear of our heart because we are just traveling on the surface. But if we just kind of pause and dip our toe beneath the surface, that's where the stuff really, the magic happens. Mm, yes, it really does. Yeah, so true. And your book, Ava, it's not only for trauma survivors, but also for therapists, right? Any professionals can use your book to help their own clients. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think, I think folks who are seeking to heal radically, transformationally, and and for therapists and spiritual directors 
It's a roadmap, and in it I lay out these thresholds of returning, these kind of metaphoric passage or sacred gateways or portals that we pass through en route to transforming our false maladaptive performative self into our authentic soul self. And I think that can serve anyone who's on that journey. Mm, yes, yes, yeah, about anyone, I agree. There's something you say in the book that I just made a note here. I, I don't know where I found this, but you write, we come to understand we are not separated from the divine, one another or creation. So that's a non-dual statement. Yeah, right? But we come to realize we are profoundly, inescapably interconnected to the whole of creation. And that is a game changer in terms of our worldview. And even as if you, if you want to get granular, our policies, our practices, right? Our politics, like if we really come from the space of everything I do affects what you do and we have this profound interconnectivity that I'm not separate from you. It's not us, them, that it's a collective. We're all in this, you know, swimming in this mystery, um, in this creation, in this incarnation, then, then how we go about configuring our systems, structures, policies, procedures, and relationships radically changes. Yeah, that would change everything for sure. Yeah. The reality, the way we perceive it now, yeah, would be very different. So that is um, the non-dual understanding too. So that that is, you call it transfiguration. Would you actually also um, call it enlightenment? <laughs> I thought about it when I, when I saw the meaning of the word. I, I mean, I could certainly see where those two could you know, certainly uh, be pointers. I mean, transfiguration, you know, of course, the biblical references to the transfiguration of Jesus of Nazareth. And, you know, when he became as his clothes and his being was luminous and became white as light. Um, but the, I use that because I really, truly believe that when we intentionally, consciously engage from the inside out, a radical transformational, transformational journey, not only are we healed, we are radically transfigured. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, we're changed in, in our, we're made anew, where we, we, we discover our resiliency, we have a renewed spirituality, we end up rewriting the trauma narratives that we've had with fresh meaning and purpose, we, we return to our lives with a revisioning of our life mission, um, we become we come home to our authentic selves and that that place of transfiguration, which is luminous or enlightenment, is a place of belonging. Ah, yes, right. Uh, yes, I have the note to your place of belonging. Would you say belonging to oneself in a sense of the individual soul or belonging to the divine? Both, right? Because, oh, yeah. I mean, belonging to the universe, belonging mm. to ourselves with the yes. universe and the divine within us and all of creation, right? There's non-duality. It's, it's a belonging, yes, of the human race and yes, and among humanity, but also of the, all of the cosmos. Mm. Yes, yeah. Universe is beyond this universe. Uh, for sure. <laughs> yes, I wanted to hear that from you. Thank you so much, Eva, for your beautiful presence. What is not to love about it? your message, your work, your intention to help others to heal, to go through the journey of transformation yourself. I heard before somebody said, fully human and fully divine. That's what I am. <laughs> and 
that also resonated true. And that's how I see you in a way, <laughs> fully human, fully divine. The way you outlined the book, I want to mention briefly, you have a quote for each meditation and then you have um, information, description about the theme and then intentional invitation and then you have a reverent reflection and so many beautiful, insightful themes. And the ones that caught my attention immediately uh, by looking at it were surrender, self-compassion, holy listening. We talked earlier about it, presence, silence. And then that Hebrew word that I didn't know how to pronounce, I still know, hesed. 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 Mm -hmm. That caught my attention without knowing the meaning. Uh, also, of course, transfiguration, authenticity. And then I made some notes here about each one of them. And I guess the one that kind of surrender was, is a big one that I understood differently. I guess for me, the message was to, of trust, trusting life, trusting all the experiences I have had, uh, which today they are most like um, scars that I can see, but I don't have memories of them anymore. They, there's mm. no, no thinking anymore behind it, but I, I still can see the, the scars. So it's surrendered to life itself and kind of just moving through it as gracefully as possible in a sense of a practice and has been a, a practice for me at the body-mind level. But in the way that you, you explain surrender in the book, it's different. So talk to me about that. What is surrender to you it's in the book? What is the, the message? Okay, well, well, first, let me preface it by saying for the trauma survivor, this is a very delicate dance. Because for folks who have been ruptured with trauma, the core wounding is a loss of agency or what we might say is moral agency or self-determination. So there has to be a balance between having a sense that we still have agency, but at the same time we want to let go of basically all that is not serving us. All, you know, agency, right, comes out of our authentic soul self, and that's very different than self-will. Self-will rises up from our wounded faults, maladaptive, performative selves, but the self-determined moral agency rises from our transforming, unfolding, authentic selves. And so surrendering is when we get to a point where we reach that we realize um, we are in a place that we can no longer do or fix and that we have to allow ourselves to lean into our own life stories, allow the narratives to carry us into the places that are scary we're going to enter the rupture. We're going to meet ourselves, befriend ourselves in our woundedness, in our split open humanity. And we're going to allow that encounter to transform us, to bring us to a place of intimate acceptance and a place of possibility. So it's it's a both and it's that new non-dual it's yeah I have I have self-determination and I'm choosing to accept that I have to embrace and surrender all the false performative fragment itself that wants to be perfect and get everything right and have external validation and surrender it onto something larger which is in this case namely my authentic self that's morphing it's emerging and to embrace that and to allow that kind of 
alchemical process to unfold. Mm. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, especially the. Um, uh, I love the point of no return. I love the uh, the possibilities. Just now, now the only option I have is to be open, <laughs> and then just being receptive for what it could be or what can be. And and to get to a place of openness to possibility from a neurobiological level, we have to be in in a in a state we call kind of the ventral vagal, you know, social engagement, calm, curious, creative place in our autonomic nervous system. And so we, in order to get there, we need to be in a safe therapeutic container relationship where we can begin to learn how to co-regulate and how to access and sustain our ventral vagal, which is polyvagal theory language. But it's basically getting to the place in our autonomic nervous system where we are not dysregulated because if we're dysregulated and we're coming from a trauma response, we cannot be open to possibilities. We're in we're in all nothing survival mode. We're in limbic system mode. So it's a process. It doesn't happen in an instant, but one can get there. And once once somebody feels safe enough, they can start to have openness and curiosity mm. to what's possible. Oh my God, Ava. Yes. Um listening to you now, the image that came to mind was, um, I think I watched somewhere on YouTube, I think, with my husband. Um, it was one story of a man who, I think he's a vet, he goes around finding abandoned uh, animals, and then he finds like those puppies that they just abandoned somewhere and they need help. The way you describe the trauma survival, it's kind of the picture came to mind, the puppy, the little puppy, kind of feeling completely unsafe, uh, unregulated, hungry, just the body and mind just completely out of control. And then kind of as you watch, you know, the, the whole story unfold that he takes the puppy, you know, at first it goes really slow. And and I kind of, that was the picture of the therapist, you know, um, kind of building trust, uh, creating that safe space. And then the puppy starts to trust uh, the caretaker and then all of the sun in the end, he is just having fun exploring the whole environment. <laughs> he takes to the place mm-hmm. that he goes everywhere and kind right. of made me think about human beings too. That's a great image. That's a great analogy because really we can't do anything in terms of openness to possibility, curiosity, creativity, unless we're regulated and we feel safe. And and so the thresholds of returning I set forth as a roadmap are kind of metaphoric gateways of ways we can get to safety, right? Like the process of getting, and it's not linear. It's a kind of inherent circular simultaneous transfiguring process, but, but certainly silence, solitude, waiting, these various kind of dimensions that get us to a place where we then move into a stage like the puppy where we're like, Oh, uh-huh. I yeah. feel safe enough to figure out like what's this thing? Oh, it's a ball, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So that's a beautiful image. Yeah. So silence, I love the way you, you talk about silence in a book. You say, silence is the soul's lover, beloved spouse. That stopped me for a while, just that phrase, silence is the soul's lover. So, Eva, I wanted to thank you again for this beautiful work that you do. To me, it's just so revealing, insightful. It's deep, it's spiritual. It's um, everything that the soul wants to be in contact with. So my heart opened 
when I was in contact with your work and your name even in the very beginning, like, oh, her name is so, so much fun. <laughs> and it kind of um, resonated and I didn't know why, the meaning even until today. So I want to thank you again for being open to life, to come to this point <laughs> where we are today of having fun, <laughs> just being open to life, to be life as a body, mind and soul and spirit, <laughs> all of them. And then come to the, the glimpse of that everything is connected. There's just one, really. It's not even that it's connected. It's worse than that. It's just, there's just one, not two. And that's, um, that's almost, I say that as almost a prayer too, that we all come to this point one way or another. Well, you mentioned prayer. Would you like me to read the prayer, a prayer for transfiguration? Yes, please. Yeah, I was coming to that. Yes, please, please. So I end the book with an epilogue and it's, a prayer for transfiguration. O compassionate one, you have gathered us here in between ink and page on this dark night of our journey as a people in search of transforming our trauma and spirituality. May we welcome our transfigured lives unfolding in safety, stability, healing, and wholeness. May the Spirit holy illumine us and open our eyes to see our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive and embrace ourselves in all our blessed wounded imperfection. May we seek to be safe. May we seek to be of sound mind. May we seek the courage to transform. May we seek to know ourselves as we continue becoming all that is possible. May we know that we are infinitely loved as we learn to love ourselves and others. May our lives be touched with moments of awe. May we practice gratitude each moment. May our joy be a light to others. May we embrace ourselves as we surrender to an ongoing transfiguring process. May our transfigured lives be a living sacrament for our bruised and broken world. May we meet the beloved always present within our soul. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be affirming and life-giving. May it be so. That's truly beautiful. It, it's, yeah, I had to have this here. Thank you for reading that too. Yeah, it's truly beautiful. And also the... Um, uh, meditation 27, Transfiguration, the uh, reverent reflection. It's truly beautiful. It, it stopped me for a long time. That was my 20-minute pause on that, that was one. Just 20 minutes. <laughs> yes, I just paused for oh, 20 wow. minutes. Uh, beautiful. Thank you so much again, Ava, for being who you are, for being you exactly the way you are. It's just so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for offering me the hospitality to show up. Um, and to receive me with such grace. I'm I'm humbled. Thank you. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is my sacred space, I call it, <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> so I have the ending questions. I do have a technical one. But before that, would you like to mention your services? I have them here in front of me. But talk to me about your service. The best way to find more information about you, to engage with your coaching services, therapeutic services. I know you offer mindfulness meditations to audio. So talk to me for a moment about that, Eva, before. So basically, if people want to explore my clinical work, they would visit our website, which is www.dragonflytrauma.com. 
that's our trauma center. And I offer neurosomatic trauma counseling and therapies. And that includes brain spotting, EMDR, mindfulness intervention, somatic attachment, inner child, depth psychotherapy, grief recovery, and and more. And if they want to learn more about the book or my coaching work that I'm I also offer, that would be at my author website, which is avadasiarasa.com. And yeah, those two websites would I think be great opportunities to get a a little bit more of a glimpse into what I do. Um, but basically, I'm rooted in uh, Western psychology, uh, relational neuroscience, polyvagal theory, somatic and attachment trauma therapies. And I'm deeply and profoundly rooted in contemplative and mystical spirituality. Mm, yes. I'll have those two links on your podcast profile and also your book link, the Amazon link as well. Oh, terrific. Great. Thank you so much again for your presence here today. We'll talk soon, Eva. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more information about Dragonfly Trauma Counseling Center, please visit dragonflytrauma.com. For the author's website, please visit avadaziaraza.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.